Good morning. I have to admit, I'm, I'm still a little mesmerized, or is that the right word? Destroyed uh, by that song, So Will I, one billion times. I don't want to think about it at the moment or I'll start dripping. It's a great, great message in that song. It's so sweet to personalize it, you know. We've been in Ephesians, and we're going to continue on the topic of uh, work or service as we uh, turn again to earth and glory, our series in Ephesians. We're in chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. I'd like to read it to us right now. Bond servants, or just slaves, quite literally, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond slave or is free. Do the same to them and stop your threat. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Last Sunday, I shared some uh, real life, I guess I could call them work experiences from, from my life. I spoke about uh, my time at Peterson's Plumbing and Air Conditioning, and uh, that really exposed the question, who do you serve? in my life? And that is an important question. That's the unexpressed question underlying these verses as Paul gives specific direction. He's saying it in response to the unexpressed or unstated question, who do you serve? Slave or free? Male or female? child or adult, leader or follower, regardless of the category, who do you serve? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why am I a good employee? If you are an employee. <laughs> why are you a good employee? The answer to that question really reveals your not only your work ethic, but where your work ethic is rooted. What's the foundation of your work ethic? What is it that makes you a good employee in terms of your motivation? What incentivizes you? 
What keeps you on track? What causes you to go the extra mile? Paul is saying it needs to be Jesus Christ. I shared about a paradigm shift. And a paradigm, I should probably define, a paradigm is a typical example. Often a paradigm for us is not clear to us until there's a shift in the paradigm. In other words, our frame of mind, uh, what we think is what's really going on. The way we read a person can be a paradigm. We think we've seen exactly what's going on. And then all of a sudden, as we use the illustration from Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, when he entered that subway and then a father with his wild children kind of upset the early morning calm and peace of everybody that was on the subway. And finally, Stephen Covey says, uh, I, as respectfully and kindly as I could, I approached the father and I said, your children are really acting up and upsetting everybody on the train car, isn't there something you can do about it? And Covey says, as though he was awakened from a sleep, he said, oh, you know, I, I guess I didn't realize their mother was just pronounced dead at the hospital. And it's kind of hard for us to know what to do. And Covey says that that was a paradigm shift. My evaluation of the father, the situation, the children, everything changed immediately. Paul is saying that the gospel is a paradigm shift for us. And every time that we turn our lives over to the, the benevolent, gracious rule of Jesus Christ, when we're filled with the Spirit is another way Paul puts it. When we let God take control of our lives and let him be the Lord and Master, then everything we do is not because of you or you, it's because of him. And it's that vertical perspective that changes everything. No matter what your station or classification in life, no matter how you see yourself, in fact, catch up with how the Lord sees you this morning, because that's the most important perspective, and the gospel gives it to you. In the business world, I've, I've been acquainted with profit sharing. I remember the Saturn Automobile Company was a fully employee-invested, incentivized company where all of the employees owned a share of the profit, of the payoff. They had skin in the game. They went to work because it was their product. There was pride in what they did because it was their product. In verses 7 and 8, Paul says, do it from a good will, which is a good translation because this word, eunoia, has to do with the favorable disposition of the mind. 
This is not a feeling thing. Oh, am I in the mood? This is about having a right mindset. It's almost, uh, dis- it's distinguished from feeling. It's distinguished from an affection that you have to have to motivate you. It comes from another place, and that place is the Lordship of Christ. That's what Paul is appealing to. He says, do it as unto the Lord. And he even makes this incredible claim. He says, you're a profit sharer in this, because the good you do, the Lord will give back to you. You will receive it back from the Lord. Have you ever thought of it that way? What if every day we did good, not because we feel like it, but because it's our state of mind, because we have such a good Lord and Master. And we want to be a part of His company, (laughs) His incredible firm, His great enterprise which is all about doing good because God is love. God is good. God is grace. And when we're doing those same things, we're on board with him. And he incentivizes us in so many different ways. But right here in this context, Paul says, you will receive back from the Lord himself, the good that you do, the good that you give, the good that you represent. And where does that good come from but from the Lord? So this is a beautiful passage, and when we serve the Lord like that, we do more than we're asked. We don't wait to be asked, and there's no job that's too small. And that's really the emphasis of this passage. This morning, we're going to take up a a couple of questions. Uh, I think, I hope about five questions that you've put to us. And I'm going to ask Joseph Holt to join me. He's going to come up. Many of you know Joseph. And Joseph, well, uh, I admire Joseph. He's a good friend. Uh, He's a great brother in the Lord. His family here has been in the church since about as long as I have. So we've gotten well acquainted and... um, had a little blood spattered on our tunics uh, along the way. Not our own blood, but, uh, you know, the heat of battle. It's a bad metaphor. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um, but Joseph is the chairman. He is the, the lead of our, our elder board. And he has a, a real rich background in the workplace, and I'd like him to share a little bit about his role at San Joaquin Valley College, where he presently is in leadership. Great. Thanks, John. Um, As John mentioned, I work at uh, San Joaquin Valley College. It's a private junior college. Um, Many of you here living in Visalia are probably familiar with the school because it was founded here in the late 70s. Um, We actually have 15 campuses across the state, so it's actually a pretty large organization. We have about 1,000 uh, staff and faculty across those uh, sites and serve uh, many thousands of students and uh, I serve as the chief administrative officer um, I've been there for 17 years and uh, I've over those years I grew in you know responsibility and areas of influence and whatnot um, but I so I'm, I am a leader now um, but I have not always been so I've been working since I was 15 uh, in a broad variety of jobs uh, and I was 
in prepping, uh, prepping for this this week, I was thinking of all the crazy, weird things that I've done over the, <laughs> over the course of my life. I was a, a lifeguard. I was a bank teller, a manager at a bank. I, I bagged groceries. Uh, I was the world's worst security guard for a period of time. <laughs> Uh, I was actually afraid of the dark during the period that I was working as a security guard. <laughs> uh, I've been fired from a job for poor performance. I, I have fired many people for poor performance. Uh, and uh, so I, I have a lot of perspectives, hopefully, that can uh, help. Um, obviously, I'm not, I don't know everything, but I'm eager to share what I do know. But let's jump right into yeah, it. Our first question is this. Uh, how should we respond to a boss that tells us uh, you ought to quit because you're never going to go anywhere in this job. But the twist on this question is that the question asker believes that uh, they're supposed to be in this vocational uh, pursuit and field of life. So uh, again, how do we respond to a boss who says, you don't have a future in this ministry, and yet the person thinks that's exactly where God wants them to be? Um, yeah, I would encourage the, the questioner to start always from a position of deference and respect. And the person has been placed in authority over you. And so while oftentimes we can hear things that we don't want to hear, and we'll have a, an immediate visceral emotional reaction, um, in that circumstance, we're called uh, to listen and to hear. And so I would first and foremost give a fair hearing uh, to those words mm -hmm. and try to see from their perspective, what is it? What is the root cause? Uh, that, why do they believe that you know, to be true? And uh, having done that first, uh, then you can move on to you know, a variety of other possibilities. It could be that they're a jerk and they don't know what they're doing. That, that's possible. <laughs> um, and it could be, even in those circumstances, there might be some wisdom you know, to draw from that. Um, as I was praying about this, a scripture that came to mind to me, both in Ephesians and elsewhere, in Colossians, and uh, it's uh, whatever you do, work yeah. at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. And uh, with emphasis on the word whatever, like the job that you have now may not be the job that you're going to have a year from now. Uh, in fact, in today's economy, it's highly unlikely that you're throughout your career, particularly you younger folks, it's unlikely that you're going to work in that career uh, for many, many years. And uh, so take some pleasure in that. Even if you feel like, hey, I'm called, this is where I should be, always be open and flexible. Uh, that might not work out. And if you feel like that's an area that you should be working in, there are surely other places sure. to work that do the same thing. And so don't be ever too entirely committed to one position. Even a bad boss can teach you good things in life. You know, they can teach you... Uh, about the workplace, about the specific job, even if they're negative examples, everything can be useful. I've been in a position to question a person's fit for ministry and had to bring that subject up. I, I wish bosses could put it in different words. That seems harsh to me, but I have uh, suggested to somebody who thinks that their calling is ministry that unless, for example, their attitude or their outlook changes, I'm not sure that's really their calling. But then I say, please prove me wrong. 
I always try to incentivize them. And in fact, uh, I know of one man who's in ministry today said that was an important turning point for him because it caused him to question some of the things he was doing and prepared him for continuing. And I said, you've made my day because uh, I'm glad to see that you've proven me wrong. The issue was not who you are, it's what you do and uh, whether you can do what you, you do. And sometimes the heart needs to be adjusted. And so we can take good even from harsh words if we're wise. The, the wise person always loves uh, reproof. I did, by the way, just it was interesting. Um, someone tweeted, uh, I constantly got in trouble for talking, constantly. Once had detention for a week straight, and at the end, a teacher said, you'll never amount to anything if you can't stop talking. I now have a daily radio show. (laughs) (laughs) So see the Lord in it, and let him prevail in your attitude, your outlook, and how you serve, and I think you'll land on your feet. Second question, when innocent but accused of wrongdoing, should you choose a plea deal or plea bargain, even if it misrepresents the truth or inaccurately portrays you as a person, or how it inaccurately portrays you as a person or employee? I'll answer that, because it's kind of a tough question, and then Joseph can chime in. Um, What came to mind is the fact that Jesus himself did not argue against charges which were false. He had a higher purpose, and that seemed to cause him to navigate the circumstances. I'm sure it was no pleasure to be told things or to be described in ways that were false and contrary to to his actions, his intentions, and his life but he suffered it for a higher purpose. He didn't, so to speak, throw down over that one issue. I know in my life, in ministry, if you go in ministry, you've got to be prepared to suffer uh, false accusation, false representation. It's painful, but you don't react to it. You have a higher purpose. You know who you are. You know what your intentions were. And you let your actions always speak for you because they are the surest representation of your choices and your intentions is what you actually do. And if you do it long enough, people will see that no matter how dim they may be in what they see. So, uh, yeah, I, would cons- I don't know what the circumstances were. I think you need to consider the jeopardy involved. I don't know what's at stake, if, if it's just your reputation or your job or there's something criminal. But perhaps using some of those guidelines, you can navigate whether you need to voice objection or bring truth to the untruth. Um, but I hope that helps you deal with with some of the inner stuff that I think helps us negotiate and decide and the choices that we make. Yeah, I would just say that nothing we say constitutes legal advice, and so we would recommend you talk to somebody 
other than us before, yeah. you, <laughs> uh, before you act on that. Um, but I think there was a meta-narrative that applies here and to several of the questions. Uh, and it has to do with the balance of rights and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And I feel there is an emphasis in our culture that seeps in even into our Christian living to hold dearly to our rights and to um, be quick to uh, feel wronged or to see the way in which this uh, is not right. And that mm -hmm. really isn't a fundamental of Christian living. Uh, even Christ himself did not see, see equality with God as something to be grasped and held tightly. That's right. in, a, in a very large spiritual scale. But um, one thing that I've uh, practiced over my career is to choose my, in my reaction which of the fruits of the Spirit is the foundation for my response. Mm. In love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. From which of these, where, this, where am I going to pivot from from this? And righteous indignation doesn't make the list. No, it, doesn't. Right? It, it isn't there. And so, again, the specifics can be you know, very tragic, but generally speaking, uh, we are called not to view ourselves as victims and to stand up for our rights, but to serve as a larger example. Good, good points. Question three, should a Christian accept a position that will cause the Christian to miss church regularly? Well, I don't think you should do it intentionally. Circumstances are a factor for sure, such as uh, being responsible to care for your family, not to be a burden to society, uh, to set an example, a responsible example in your life, which I think coheres to our Christian uh, and discipling following of Jesus Christ. Um, I would ask if someone asked me in this question in private, um, are you weighing the cost of a job and, or vocation that takes you away from family being together in worship? How do you put a price tag on your example uh, in the family, your influence in the family, your time together? Uh, because one of the strongest statements an adult says to the people looking at his or her life is, uh, I devote myself to the Lord. I devote myself to the Lord in these ways. And being a part of the church that you not just belong to in some kind of a formal sense, but that God has placed you in, to set a job which, for you have to ask yourself, what are the reasons for taking this job, and do they outweigh the reasons for me being an example to those in my life and being a contributor to the church that God has called me to serve and be a part of. So it's a tough question, and sometimes when society is influencing us, it becomes a very easy question, and we, don't, we think in terms of dollars, what we can buy. Maybe even our lifestyle is a little too rich and should be a bit, bit leaner. Maybe we're living a little higher than we ought to, and therefore we have to take jobs like that because Otherwise, we don't have the flexibility of choice. It almost takes some of our freedom of choice away. So those are things that have to be weighed, and I, I know they're tough. Yeah, I think your meaningful engagement in church and in a, a faith community like we have here um, actually makes you a better employee. You are more valuable mm -hmm. in your workplace 
the more engaged you are in a faith community. And so um, if, you're, if you have some of that time, it's not that your boss tells you that you have to work every Sunday, you might take that on yourself and say, well, I gotta catch up or I'm gonna do this. So sometimes that's even voluntary. And so maintaining work-life balance is, is critical. And, um, and ultimately, one of the beauties, in, if you look in contrast to the biblical um, sources we have on this topic, um, was a very different economic system, as you guys talked about last week, where you had like 20% you know, of, uh, of this audience, for example, might be slaves. Um, we, are, we are not. Uh, we work largely in an at-will employment environment. And so I do have heard people over the years that um, feel like they have to work for that person. And they're operating fundamentally from a position of fear that because this is the only way my needs can be met. And we serve a God, right, who, is, who asks a lot of yeah. us. And he ultimately is a good God, a good and loving God. Uh, and when we ask for him to provide, he will uh, provide for us. And so... I would say be bold. If, you have, if there is a work that is fundamentally interfering with your spiritual growth, um, I would encourage you to find different work. And in general, I, I would encourage us all to, you can define what I'm going to say according to your own life situation, but I would just say simplify your life. Sometimes we complicate our lives by the decisions we make and the, we encumber ourselves with, with debt that limits our freedom, that steals our peace. We engage in things that l really diminish the quality of our life. And somehow we trade the quality of our life, which Christ, of course, multiplies, but we trade that for money. And uh, so, yeah, there are lots of factors, but, but kind of look deeper sometimes and, and ask yourself, what is it that I'm really seeking uh, in, my, in my job? Um, here's a good question, and I'm going to let you answer it, Joseph. How do you respond to a boss when he tells you to lie or do something unethical to make a sale? Um. Simple, short answer would be uh, refuse. Mm -hmm. uh, if a boss tells you to certainly violate a law, is obvious, um, uh, because we serve uh, God. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. And uh, to that end, if you're in an employment situation and you're asked to do something that is objectively, obviously wrong or sinful, uh, refuse and find different work. Um, I would caution just with one little caveat. Oftentimes, be objective and even seek godly counsel for whether you're just offended by what they're asking you to do or if it is in fact wrong. So is that, uh, what is the source of opinion? So I've, I've noticed myself in a spectrum, particularly for people who work in sales, right? And so if, you, if you're talking to somebody who's working in sales and they might feel, no, I don't, I think that's wrong, when there isn't actually anything objectively wrong with the request. Maybe they're uncomfortable with it, mm -hmm. right? But uh, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong. It might not be something that's right for you. But, so I would be careful, again, seek godly counsel saying, hey, here's the situation. And, uh, but if, if it is clear that you're being asked to do something wrong or unethical, I would leave. Sometimes there's, there's got to be some incentive attached to that that makes it appealing to you. I would just encourage you along with uh, saying no, 
to think of the consequences if you did or went along with something that, as Joseph defined, is objectively and clearly wrong. Um, one, one act of deception like that opens a door to more. So it doesn't lighten your burden. That may be part of the appeal. Somehow you get, a, get ahead for a short spurt, but you've got to think long term. And then you've got to also think about the cost of your guilt, your regret, your fear, the tyranny of the secret, uh, the loss of a clear conscience. Those things in some ways can be corrected or recovered, but they, they involve as much uh, hard work, painful work, so to speak, to get back as you avoided by taking a shortcut to do something that was perhaps dishonest or deceptive. So there's always something more than just um, the bottom line of, of, a, of a profit sheet. Mm -hmm. There are things that we need to appreciate that are worth more than money to us in terms of, of our right-hearted, the well-being of our, of our daily outlook in life. If I could real quickly interject mm -hmm. there as well. Um, that happens, bosses asking or directing employees to do unethical things. I think more often what happens is employees choose to do unethical things um, yeah. due to a misunderstanding of uh, or a, a lack of right priority. Uh, an, ex an example, there's a large you know, uh, bank, for example, recently that's been in the news for what a, a class of employees were doing something unethical and wrong. Uh, they were, there was no policy manual telling them to do that. They weren't directed to do that. In an effort to achieve goals, they built their own microsystem, right? And I, I've observed this over years to yeah. say, so um, again, don't, don't worry quite as much as somebody telling you to do something wrong as maybe yourself, even covering for an error maybe. Like if you did something wrong, it's like, oh, well, how can I cover this? What's the CYA you know, maneuver? Oop, can you say CYA here? <laughs> a uh, self-protective uh, decision. <laughs> uh, so more often, we, we are more, a greater temptation to ourselves. It's almost I'll, like in spiritual warfare. <laughs> it's like uh, we can say, oh, the, you know, the devil made me do it, or there was this external force. The bigger battle is within yourself. Do you bring your best self to work every day and make the right decisions? I'm just going to write that down. Oh. <laughs> Here's another question. My company policy regarding gender pronouns requires that I use the pronoun that the individual wants other people to use. My personal problem is that I feel like I'm lying and am convicted if I call a man a woman and vice versa. So I refrain from speaking with any pronouns at all when possible. Is there another way to approach this issue without making me feel like I'm violating my conscience and still be pleasing to my organization? You want me to go first? Sure. Um, so I have a big answer and a little answer. I'll <laughs> start with the, the um, big one. It's actually a little bit off topic, um, but prompted by that. We, in secular work environments, are dealing with a literally dizzying pace of social change. Uh, in the last 10 years, even the last five years, uh, change is happening very, very quickly. And um, what I would uh, encourage this person and all of us, because this is not a unique circumstance, many of you are dealing with this uh, daily, 
And so I would, this is my encouragement to you. Um, because something makes you uncomfortable, uh, uh, be guard, guard your heart against how I react to that emotionally because it made me uncomfortable. And the reason that I say that is we sometimes, I, I believe, have a wrong view through conservatism that things used to be so much better than they are now. So like if the workplace, if my workplace had the same office rules that were in place in 1954, right, that would somehow be more godly than what is in place today. And I didn't bet this entirely with you. This might be an unpopular point of view. And so write me, not John, if you disagree with me, but uh, sin is sin. And so if a, a boss who is How sleeping... How can I agree with... Uh, oh, that, disagree, that agree with, with that. that. No, I agree with you. But if you have a boss who is uh, sleeping with a secretary and everybody knows that, um, that's wrong, but it's heterosexual, so it doesn't make me quite as uncomfortable if somebody decides they want to transition their gender, right? I'm going to have a more visceral reaction to the second issue because it's weird and it's disorienting. And some of the other stuff we've gotten used to, right, the sin in the workplace, it's like there is a very... It's a bad noise, like a scratchy, crackly noise, and we've worked in it for so many years that we just got used to it. And then when somebody puts a new high-pitched squeal, a new frequency, we're like, what's that noise? Stop that noise. We've been living, we live in a fallen, broken world, yeah. working with fallen, broken people. The manifestations of that, the behaviors associated with it are changing, but the root issue is the same. And so please don't, to these circumstances, bring any new heat or energy or like, you mentioned earlier, is this the hill you're going to die on? Yeah. Right? Is this it? Is this where you draw the line? Right? Like in, the, in hashtag me too, whatever sexual harassment has happened, right? If now, well, we've reached our breaking point, can't, ha can't handle the gender pronouns, I would say that's, I, I don't agree with that. I think that um, the authorities are making decisions, there have been decisions that call on us uh, to and behave as loving Christians in that space. It's a great book, um, People to be Loved, uh, by uh, Preston Sprinkle, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. I would encourage you uh, to look that at People to be Loved. And so people who are struggling, that are confused, and are going through this sexual expression are people to be loved fundamentally. And, and one last thing real quick is um, 1 Corinthians 9:19. Uh, Paul talks about how he moved through a variety of social circumstances and met people where they were. When he was working with Jews, he acted as one under the law, even though I'm not under the law. And when he was with people that weren't under the law, right, he, so we have, we are called to live in the world, but not be of the world, right? And so that is the world we live in, and don't bring up any special heat or energy over this one issue. And I would add, there's mention of the conscience here, the conscience, according to Scripture, is not immutable. It can be altered, it can be seared, it can be changed. So we can't pit our conscience alone against something or use it as a completely reliable and serviceable uh, indicator of, uh, of offense or wrong. It needs to be transformed, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, it's transformed right along with the mind. That's important. Secondly, Matthew chapter 7, I think 
Jesus gives us the best advice, and obviously it's a policy or an approach that he himself uses. He makes sure there's no log in his own eye so that he may see clearly how to remove the splinter in the eye of another. And what I, would have, <clears throat> what I was going to advise is that you have a higher mission, and that is uh, to change the person's perception of you and Jesus Christ with you by the Christ-like way you address and deal uh, with some of the things that are uncomfortable for you. I would encourage you, and I think I would find that uncomfortable. It's not customary for me. But I think Jesus always used what God's best interests in that person's life, uh, what that would be he pursued. And that's called love. And God wants us to reach people in Christ-like love that they might see Christ in us and really get beyond all of the misunderstandings or misrepresentations of followers of Christ and see the real Christ-like grace and purpose because the only way a person's heart is going to be changed is in a faith encounter with the living Son of God, the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. He's the one who changes if change needs to be uh, taking place. So that, that, I would build a bridge to that person through listening, trying to understand, and let them see Christ in you. And I would add real quickly that um, you can be right and you can be kind, and ideally we are always both of those things, right? And leaning on saying, well, I'm not gonna, you want me to use a word that I'm not, I'm not going to use, right? Like you wanna be called a different gender pronoun. I won't do it because it's wrong. Um, that person has made a request of you, if you will, directly or indirectly. And so be kind and wait and look for the opportunity to coach and help. Yeah, the sooner you, and, and the further you get closer to a person, the more you see things that you can't see from a distance. And they often help us to understand and to navigate the, some of the challenges. I, I mentioned Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 for you, because to me, that is an expression of looking beyond a person's faults to meet their needs. And that's exactly what Jesus did with me. He looked beyond my faults to meet my needs. And that's exactly what Jesus is asking us to do with people who frustrate us or are sandpaper people or different than us in whatever many ways a person can be different. So I think, uh, I think that's pretty important to keep in mind. Look beyond the faults to meet the needs. And do you know what faults are? what you evaluate as a fault in another person, you know what a fault is? It's an unmet need. Ponder that. Because faults are sometimes wrong-headed, exaggerated ways of trying to compensate for something that isn't satisfied or met that is a deep need in their life. So if you look at it that way, you can really take on the mission of the gospel 
and serve the Lord in that situation. We don't have to worry about whether we're right or wrong before the Lord. He's not keeping score. The cross took care of that. He's trying to turn us loose on the world that others might join us. Uh, Number six, how do you deal with an employee who is not cutting it and needs to be let go? I saved the best one for last. (laughs) How do you discipline an employee and or fire an employee while still being a positive witness for Christ? Well, you just say, Jesus told me to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A couple thoughts on this. Um, First, I would very clearly distinguish discipline from termination. Mm -hmm. Um, The purpose of every discipline, if you're in a position of authority at work, every time you're disciplining somebody, it's um, so they perform better next. Mm -hmm. Your goal is their improvement, their engagement, their contribution of value. Um, And then when you terminate somebody, that's always a very short conversation because termination is not a disciplinary action. It's the end of, an, of a relationship. We are no, this is, we're not going to have this relationship anymore. And so um, please be careful when you're doing terminations. They're very short. They're very direct. This hasn't worked out. I wish you the best in your future endeavors. Thank you for the service that you had. Don't get engaged in debate. Don't have a long, drawn-out conversation. Don't rehash what led to that. You needn't go through and build a case for everything that, up to that point. So terminations are actually relatively simple. Um, discipline is where the real heart of the Lord is, is how can you help somebody uh, get better uh, in that? And it can be, it is super uncomfortable letting people go. Um, one encouragement that I would have you for there is, it's been my experience that often, not always, but often, the person that you're letting go is fundamentally relieved. Um, If you have been an effective supervisor to that point, Mm -hmm. they are not surprised that you're letting them go, right? So it would be ugly if you come in and blind somebody. Sometimes if you have to do layoffs or reductions in force, that is the case, and that's a different category. But if you're terminating someone for performance, they should already know. Um, And oftentimes, uh, it's in their best interest. It's in the best interest of your company, and it's in their best interest as well. I've actually had people um, thank me and for after a termination. Um, and not often, but uh, enough to I know it's true, right? Uh, and so don't, one last thought there, rights and responsibilities. It is not the responsibility of an employer to employ everyone, right? Uh, uh, businesses, the overwhelming majority are um, for profit or for public good, and we have to meet performance requirements. And so an employer is not obligated to employ you, right? And you are obligated to contribute value. And if that isn't happening, right, then a different employment relationship. I've been to a lot of Disney trainings over the years, and they have a phrase that I always love. They say that every employee has magic to bring. Just Mm. some employees should take their magic elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. And I, I think something that may be hidden to some of you is I'm not going to add a thing. I think Joseph covered that quite well, but I would have you pay attention to the word discipline, which he used, which we sometimes think as penal, as punishment, but this is where all the prerequisite kind of encouragement, direction, help, uh, the desire to see a person succeed, 
where presently they're failing, all that's packed in there. So, and the word disciple is uh, embedded in discipline. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, it's been a good time together. I hope the Lord has, uh, you know, we pray that God would, would use our discussion of highly practical things in a way that in principle and in practice serves you and helps you live out the life of Christ wherever you are and especially in your workplace. So God bless you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for your Spirit. Thank you for the revolutionary work that you do in our hearts. We praise you for the wisdom and the truth of your Word. And we may it, may it be magnified because of our time together in your presence this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.